Well, this fall, I began a grass-growing project. And on the surface level, it seems fairly straightforward, right? You till up the soil, toss some seed down, pray for a little rain, maybe water it a bit, and watch the stuff grow. It can't be that difficult, can it? Well, based on my last experience and your subtle verbal response there, maybe it can be a little tougher than it seems to get the grass growing at times. So this time, I wised up and I decided to ask my neighbor for some help. Now, this neighbor is a grass-growing expert. His yard is immaculate. He has it striped sideways and vertically and horizontally. The thing looks incredible. And so he's teaching me all kinds of stuff about how to grow grass. And on the one hand, he told me, Exactly the sort of things I would expect him to say. You got to get good dirt, get the right seed, you got to fertilize this thing, make sure it has enough water, and then you just kind of watch it grow. Fairly predictable on the one hand. But then he went, he went deeper on it. He sort of unlocked next level grass growing for me. So the area where we were trying to grow grass, we had to bring in dirt. And he says, well, there's a particular company in town you need to call because they bring in the best topsoil and they almost never have rocks in their soil. So you got to call these guys. And there was a specific kind of grass seed that he recommended. He said, it's going to be best for late fall planting in the climate of central Indiana. And there's a particular brand of this kind of grass seed that doesn't have as much filler material as Scott's and some of the other big names that you see at Lowe's. And then there's this particular fertilizer he tells me about that goes right on top of it. It's like starter fertilizer. That I thought fertilizer you put on and it burns out the seed and it doesn't work. And he says, no, 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 there's a kind specifically for this. Says, this is cool. And so he's, he's telling me about watering. He says, well, you need to get at least 45 minutes of water on it at a time and then shoot for three times a day of watering. Man, this is, this is just taking it to a whole other level. I've never thought about growing grass like this. And so what he did is he took the predictable elements and he took them a whole lot deeper and all of a sudden, do you know what we have? We have a lot of grass growing in that area. It looks terrific right now. I mean, the, the Indian winter sort of helped us on that or Indian summer, whatever it's called. When it stays late, warm later than it's supposed to. <laughs> I forget what that's called. But it helped us too. But all in all, I learned a lot about growing grass. In this morning's sermon, I want you to think about a little bit in light of that like growing grass. You see on the screen that it's titled Cultivating Christian Gratitude. And as we approach Thanksgiving, I think there's a lot of value in us taking a Sunday, an entire Sunday, morning and evening, and considering what the Bible says about gratitude. So it's a freestanding sermon of sorts. It's not part of the last sermon series, and we'll start a new little mini-series next week. But just like it's good to grow grass, most of you know that it's good to be thankful, to be marked by gratitude. And there's some obvious ways to grow in gratitude, just like you would think of obvious ways to grow grass. And yet the Bible also gives us some unexpected ways to grow in gratitude. And it gives us some tools to grow deeper in our gratitude. And so this morning, I want to structure our outline based around two questions we want to ask. First off, asking, what is Christian gratitude? And secondly, how do we cultivate Christian gratitude? Two questions we hope to ask and answer. What is Christian gratitude? And secondarily, how do we cultivate Christian gratitude? So starting with the first one, what is Christian gratitude? Maybe you, you read that and you ask, why, Justin, do you use the term Christian gratitude? Are there non-Christian forms of gratitude? And I think the answer is yes, there absolutely are non-Christian forms of gratitude. So what is it that's unique about Christian gratitude, you might ask? I think I would say, answer it this way, that non-Christian gratitude 
is grounded in favorable circumstances. Non-Christian gratitude is grounded in favorable circumstances. And this tends to be the most common form of thanksgiving and gratitude that, that I hear expressed around the Thanksgiving season. It's more of a cultural version of Christianity, a Bible Belt version of Christianity, and not necessarily the biblical version of Christianity. Where you hear Thanksgiving for our, our job or our, our family, or our home, your friends, so on. And I think even, even when things aren't going well, even in the midst of trials, we tend to lean into a form of gratitude a bit like this, where I say, I may not have this thing, it might be going really poorly here, but at least I have this favorable circumstance to hang on to over here. Where basically my gratitude is grounded and I have some kind of favorable circumstance right now that I can cling to. Now, being grateful for good circumstances is a good thing. We ought to be grateful for those things. So don't mishear me saying that's like a bad thing at all, but we miss the mark when we value the gifts over the giver. Right, so non-Christian gratitude is focused on the gifts, the favorable circumstances. That's what grounds it. That's the foundation of it, as opposed to Christian gratitude, which is not grounded in favorable circumstances. It is grateful for favorable circumstances, but not grounded there. Right, so just to consider a couple of passages that, that sort of illustrate this, Ephesians 5.20 is awfully clear. We are to be giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ not just when things are good. Or 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 18, give thanks in all circumstances. Or Philippians 4 and verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Thanksgiving in everything. We could certainly go on and on with similar passages, but the, the call to Christian gratitude is at all times and in all circumstances. And so, yes, Christians ought to give thanks when things are going well. Exodus 15 is a lengthy prayer and, and song of thanksgiving after the Israelites have been delivered from Egypt. We have biblical model for that. It's obvious that we ought to give thanks for the gifts that God has given, but we're also called to give thanks when things aren't going well when the wind seems to be in our face, and it's been in our face for a while, when the wheels seem to be falling off, yes, give thanks at all times and in all circumstances. I'm reminded of, of Daniel. He's carried off, he's in exile. The king makes it illegal to pray in any form. This is Daniel chapter six. He goes back to his room and he prays. And, and if we just think about that situation, if in, if in our country it were illegal to pray at any time for any reason in any place, there'd be a lot of chatter, but I don't know if we would find, like we do in Daniel 6.10, Daniel giving thanks. Think about how hard that would be for him. It's a pretty bad situation. And he says, I'm going to come before the Lord and I'm going to give thanks, even when things seem to be going terribly. Or Jonah, he got himself in a whale of a problem. And in chapter two, we read of him praying, verse nine, that he's giving thanks in the belly of the whale. Right? He's being judged for his sin. His circumstances are not good. He doesn't know how God will act. He might die in the belly of the whale for all he knows. And he's giving thanks while there, before things have gotten better. And whether the circumstances are good or they are bad, 
we know that as Christians, we're called to be grateful because we have a better hope, looking at a future hope that's better than the best of current circumstances and certainly better than the worst of circumstances. So that's why Peter would write to the Christians in his epistle right off the bat. He says, you have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. It's kept in heaven for you. And so whether it's, it's good or bad, we know that we have a future that's way better than anything we could experience on this earth. So when I start to define Christian gratitude, what we're saying is to be grateful as a Christian is to recognize my thankfulness is not grounded in my current circumstances. It's grounded in something much deeper than that. But Christian gratitude is also a mark of godliness. To state it negatively, to say this, if you're not grateful... You're not godly. It's a command. It is, you might say, more than a feeling. There are hundreds of calls to gratefulness and to gratitude throughout the scriptures, right? There's no way I could exhaust all of them, but to pull just one common one up to mind, look at the screen, Colossians chapter two, verses six and seven. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and build up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. I think other translations render that overflowing with thanksgiving. So it's not just a command to be grateful, but to be abounding in thanksgiving, to be overflowing in thanksgiving, to be unending in your gratitude. So gratitude is a mark of godliness, and if you're not grateful, you're not godly. Pretty straightforward. And throughout the Bible, there's a, a, a comment that's made, a, a remark that's made that points out that lack of gratitude is a mark of unbelief. So it's not just a positive command. This is the mark of a Christian, a godly person. There's also the inverse on the negative side saying when we fail to be grateful, when we fail to give thanks, that is a mark of unbelief. Romans chapter one, in the, kind of the picture of unbelief being sketched, we read in verse 21, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Failing to give thanks is a mark of unbelief. Or 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul writes to Timothy and says this, but understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful. The mark of the, the unbelieving heart is a, is a heart that's focused on itself, Lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, arrogant, proud. Here's all the things I've done. Here's why you guys should be glad that I'm here. Here's why I deserve more than what I've received. Ungrateful. So, so in summarizing the first question that we've moved fairly quickly to, what is Christian gratitude? It's a mark of godliness and it is not grounded in our circumstances. No, it certainly gives thanks for good circumstances, but it goes much deeper than that. It's a command to us. I think the words of Johnny Erickson Tata are worth considering here. She's certainly no stranger to suffering and when things don't go well, here's what she says. Giving thanks is not a matter of feeling thankful, it's a matter of obedience. So it's good to reorient ourselves as we approach the Thanksgiving holiday, not just on the, the standard ideas we have about gratitude, but what does the Bible actually say? 
And let's orient our, our own thanksgiving and our own gratitude 52 weeks a year, not just this week of the year, around what the scriptures say. So you start to consider that, and it's actually a much weightier call to gratitude than what maybe we, we stereotypically think of or what you hear on the radio. You know, it's, it's more than that. And so that's where it forces us to ask the second question, if there's a, a higher bar for Christian gratitude, then how exactly do we cultivate that kind of Christian gratitude? That's the second question we want to ask. How do I cultivate, how do we cultivate Christian gratitude? And this is why we're in Psalm 100 this morning, because what Psalm 100 does is it takes the predictable elements of giving thanks, and then it goes deeper. Just like my neighbor kind of took the predictable elements of grass growing and then went deeper with them, so Psalm 100 does a similar work in helping us to cultivate Christian gratitude. And one of the things that we'll see throughout, and I just want to highlight at the beginning, is that cultivating Christian gratitude, it happens in community. It's a team game. I've often said that Christianity is not a solo sport. There's no such thing as a free agent Christian in the New Testament that's not committed to a local church and doing life with people and loving them, walking in the good times, the bad times, and the mundane plateaus of life. And as we look at how cultivating gratitude is shown in Psalm 100, I think we'll see the corporate dimension, the togetherness of it throughout so three things, sort of subpoints on how we cultivate Christian gratitude from Psalm 100. The first thing is right there in the first two verses, we sing God's truths together. That's the first thing. We cultivate Christian gratitude by singing God's truth together. If, if your Bible's still open to Psalm 100, I'd invite you to look back as we read those first two verses. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. I love that it calls us to a joyful noise because some of you, like me, are not very good singers and God is still calling us to make a joyful noise to him. And some of you that are gifted, I love to hear your voices being raised, harmonizing together. And if you're not that gifted at singing, I still love to hear the joyful noise. It strengthens all of us to hear that. Singing together is one of God's ordained ways that we would cultivate a heart of gratitude. Look, there's nothing wrong with singing in the car or in the shower or by yourself while you mow the grass, whatever. All that's good. But when the scriptures speak of singing, there's a particularly together component of the singing that God has in mind. Colossians 3 sort of builds on Psalm 100 here. Verses 16 and 17 are on the screen. Here's what we read. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. You see that? Leave it up there for a second. Teach, admonish one another in all wisdom, you might say, by singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing sounds simple, but it's actually how we teach and admonish one another. Singing is how you help the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Right? I hope you remember the outline of the sermon this morning. It's far more likely at 3 o'clock in the afternoon today, you will remember a line from a song than it is the outline. This is how the word of Christ dwells in you richly. And singing prepares you for heaven. Because the call to worship this morning, I read from Revelation 5, we will be gathered around the throne singing forever. And if we're going to be doing it forever, we might as well start practicing now. It 
cultivates a heart of gratitude. It's like an irrigation system. You don't necessarily see the effects of it all the time, but it definitely is effective in helping that grass grow and helping a heart of gratitude be a regular part of your life. So as your pastors, what we do, we prioritize congregational singing. We choose songs as best we can that can be sung by normal voices, not just ones reserved for professional kinds of voices. We want the band to be musically pleasing, but not overpowering or putting on a show. Actually, I didn't even know we were going to have an acoustic set when I selected this passage, and it sort of makes the, makes the point for us this morning of the beauty of hearing our voices raised together. That's why we frequently will go a cappella, to hear the voices together. The, the lights are on so that we are together encouraging one another, strengthening one another, teaching and admonishing one another in the words of Colossians 3. But perhaps most importantly, when we think about singing together, one of the most important things we can do is prioritize a diet of songs that are actually worth singing. Because we believe that Christians are strengthened by a healthy diet of good songs. Right? In your nutritional diet, if all it consisted of was Red Bull and Snickers and Sour Patch Kids, you would be malnourished. Like the commercials say, you're not you when you're hungry. You know, it's not like you're eating poison, but you wouldn't be healthy, right? And so when it comes to our, our diet of songs that we're singing, we have to have a, a higher bar, a higher threshold than merely avoiding doctrinal poison. Like if the, if the bar is we didn't sing heresy, that's a terrible bar for what we would sing as Christians. So let's aim for a rich seven-course meal in our singing that will strengthen us week in, week out, and cultivate a heart of gratitude because a healthy, well-fed heart is a grateful heart. And in singing together, we do that. And so you just think about the, the experiences of life that we're gonna navigate. There's times when life will feel mundane, like there's nothing crazy going on. It's just sort of week to week, staying at the grind, trying to keep your head above water. And it's good to sing together then streams of mercy, never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. Because it feels kind of boring in my life right now. And I recognize that God's streams of mercy, never ceasing, always call for songs of loudest praise. And I've got much to be grateful for. And there's other times in life where it feels like maybe God has forgotten us. And it's good to sing, Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He, to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. Well, he's not forgotten. He sent his son for me. And his son died for me. And he's not lost sight. There's other times when the, the cold weather in the winter starts to beat you down or just the cold of life in, in general starts to beat you down. And it's good that we would gather together and sing, on that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face, clothed in blood-washed linen, how I'll sing thy sovereign grace. When it feels cold and dark, there's a bright and a warm future when I will be freed from sinning I'll be throwing aside the sin and the weights that, that entangle us in the words of Hebrews 12. Oh, that's so much to be grateful for. There, there's times when we just don't feel like reading our Bibles, times we don't feel like praying, times we don't feel like coming to church. And it's good for us to have songs that take that normal condition of the heart and give us a language for it so we can sing, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. 
Do you see how just in one simple song that we sang today, there are so many different experiences of life that singing it together, and sometimes you come to church and you don't want to sing. It's hard to sing. And when you hear hundreds of voices around you singing it, it strengthens you and cultivates gratitude in your heart. You continue walking as a Christian in faith, looking ahead to the city that has foundations. So singing together is the first way Psalm 100 tells us, here's how you cultivate a heart of gratitude. But it says more than singing. It says, secondly, that we know God's character together. We know his character together. Take a look back at verses three and four of Psalm 100. Here's what it says. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. You know, I'd imagine when I put on the screen, subpoint, know God's character together, maybe somebody asked, Justin, do we really need to study theology, the attributes of God? Isn't that what pastors are supposed to do and, and sort of distill it to us? Maybe you're thinking 1 Corinthians 8, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. We should be more focused on love and less focused on knowledge. And surely we'd be against, everyone I hope would be against, a cold, dead theology that doesn't transform us. Okay, let's take that. that that's not what anybody's after. But as I, I've been so helped by uh, Jen Wilkins' explanation of this, she says, the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. Imagine saying to your spouse, I don't want to know things about you. I don't want to know about your day or the things that are stressing you out or the things you're excited about. I just want to love you. It's a false dichotomy. The heart can't love what the mind doesn't know. So you study who God is and study his character together so that we can love him better. And studying God's character, it gives language and precision to what maybe we sense about God and it will carry us through the, the ups and the downs and the plateaus of our lives. And so in Psalm 100, verses three and four, it speaks of God as the sovereign creator, as a loving savior and a merciful shepherd. Three things that are sort of right there, but these truths ground us, that he's the sovereign king of all the universe. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves, right? That means our fundamental identity is receiving good from God because he made us and we didn't make ourselves, we don't get to define who we are as people. We don't get to define who we are as a church. All of these things are received from God. He's the sovereign king of all the universe. He's not some distant dictator who just shouts down commands from afar, snapping his finger and expecting his minions to run. No, he's a loving savior who came to make us his own. And he didn't just make us his own and shed his blood on our behalf and then leave and say, good luck, guys, I hope you figure it out on your own. Psalm 100 describes him as the shepherd. We are the sheep of his pasture where he's lovingly, gently leading us along the way. Not only here to save you, but to guide you and to walk with you. You see, cultivating Christian gratitude means we know God's character together and we must go beyond knowledge about God Knowing these truths, he's the sovereign creator, the loving savior, the merciful and gentle shepherd. We gotta go to knowledge about, more than definitions is what we're after, but knowledge of God. Knowledge about your spouse must flow into knowledge of your spouse and love for your spouse. 
How does that happen with God? Maybe one more little way of thinking about this would be helpful. Imagine this building, Parkside Bible Church, and you drop somebody in for the first time, and they sit over in this section, we'll say, and, and they've got a, the blueprints and a map of the facility. They now have knowledge about the place. But if you try and tell them how to get to one of the upstairs classrooms from this section right here, well, you're going to go out the hall, out the back, follow the S-curves all the way around. When you get to the four-way, hang a left, go down to the elevator, go upstairs, follow the maze around, and get to the back room on the northeast corner. That's where it's at. Well, they've got the blueprint, they've got the map, they've got the knowledge about the place, but everybody here knows you need more than knowledge about the place. What you need is someone to say, hey, come with me, I'll show you how to get there. We're going to walk this way. And you just go for a walk together. And if you've ever, well, everybody had to have been a new person, so I can't say if you've ever, when you were a new person and someone walked you that way, it was like, oh, that makes a little bit of sense now. Could you do that with me a couple more times so I can figure it out the rest of the way? And in a similar way, when it comes to knowledge about God, it requires us together walking and say, let's know God together. Let me show you what these attributes in motion look like together. Let me show you what this character together looks like in motion. So just speaking really personally here, for me, I had to ask myself, how do I give thanks to God in all circumstances based on God's character when my mom is diagnosed with Parkinson's before she's 50? Kind of seems like a raw deal. It's not how it's supposed to be. And you know what she did? She showed me experientially what 2 Corinthians 12 looks like. How God's power works best in weakness. How his grace is sufficient. She didn't just give me a theology textbook. She said, Jessica, come and walk with me. Let me show you what this is like together. And in that way, I've learned of God's power. Yes, I know what omnipotence means. I went to Bible college but I saw it in action. It went from knowledge about to knowledge of. And so friends, when God brings difficulty in your life, don't waste your suffering. Don't waste the difficulty. You've got an opportunity to instruct and take somebody around the shoulder and say, here's what it looks like. Here's how God is strengthening me. Here's how he's sustaining me. Here's how it's really hard and I'm grappling for answers and I don't have it all together right now. There's an opportunity there for us to know God's character together. There is a book that I found helpful. I might commend it to you. It's called Rejoicing and Lament. It's the one that's um, on the little book stand out there in the bookstore. It's by an author who uh, at 39 was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer. He had a doctorate in theology and he said, all of a sudden I recognized I knew about God and I have to experience and know God in a totally different way because I'm staring my own death in the face before I turn 40. And I lament these things, but he titled it Rejoicing in Lament. How do I rejoice while lamenting these circumstances? I think you would be helped by that. But there's, a, there's another aspect of this where what I just spoke of was you're in the midst of difficulty and you can help people know God's character experientially as you walk through. There's other times where we encounter difficulty and we need others to remind us of God's character. We need to be reminded of that. And a word of caution, I think, is necessary because it's easy to swoop in and see somebody who's in a difficult season and just have all the theological answers and say, fill in the blank thing that maybe is not well-timed and it's not well-suited. So there's great care that's required here. You gotta listen a lot. You need to have deep empathy and walk with people as they are suffering. 
But we also must be people that are shaped by God's word and have the courage to remind one another. What 2 Corinthians 4 says, that this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. God is sovereign over all of life, including our suffering. But he's not just the sovereign distant one. He's the loving, merciful Savior, the gentle shepherd leading us. And so we can know on the basis of those attributes of God, that character of God, that your suffering isn't wasted. And of course we can't see what he's doing in the moment. Of course that's beyond our scope of vision. But friends, God never wastes the tears of his saints. God never wastes the tears of his saints. It's doing something. And together, as we know God's character, by reminding one another, whatever seat you're sitting in, it cultivates a heart of gratitude to sing praises to him in all circumstances and at all times, as Ephesians 5 tells us to. So we sing God's truth together. We must know deeply his character together. But the third thing that Psalm 100 tells us is we must remember God's acts together. Remember God's acts together. Looking again at verse five. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. God's faithfulness endures to all generations. And it's our job to tell another generation of his faithfulness so that it's never forgotten. So you think back on your lives, the way you've seen the provision of God in providing a job or a car or a spouse or a child or whatever it may be. I recall back my, my freshman year of college, I tried to find some good scholarships, tried to work hard, save up some money, came to the end of the year. I owed about $5,000 left on the year. And uh, after spring break, I got a call from the business office. I was supposed to come meet with some bigwig. And uh, man, this is not good. Like, I don't have the money, and I don't exactly know how all this stuff works. So I, you know, didn't respond to the email right away. And they, they, of course, followed up promptly as they were supposed to. And eventually, I made my way up there, and I sat down with, with the man. And uh, he starts asking questions, this and that, about how things are going. And I'm like, look, man, like, like, can we just cut the small talk here and just tell me how much I owe? Like, can we get past these things? And uh, he says to me, he says, you know, Justin, somebody came along and uh, they've taken care of the rest of your bill. What? Yeah, who was this? He said, I'm, they want to stay anonymous. Like, I want to write a thank you note. Well, you can write them a thank you note. I'll deliver it. But he says, their request was that you would just go live generously. It's powerful. It's like, wait, what do I do except just tell me what to do? He's like, no, just have a spirit of generosity. That's all they ask of you. It changes how you think about things. It changes how I think about my needs now to remember the acts of God. It changes how I think about others' needs because somebody generously gave so that I could be on the receiving end. How it filled my heart with gratitude. I remember God's provision in that way. We, we were just a couple of weeks ago together as pastors. And, um, and I don't know if this happens to you guys or not. I assume it happens to all people. We'd been together, obviously, on a Sunday. And, and it was like baptism Sunday or something. We were fired up, like all excited. And by Tuesday night, we gathered. And, and we're sitting around Pastor Casey's living room. And we're sharing what's going on. And most of us are feeling fairly beat down by the week. And we kind of paused for a second. And we're like, 
Okay, this is only 48 hours ago. We were like on top of the spiritual mountain here, like people getting baptized, like, yeah, like Jesus is winning. And Tuesday, like, uh, my wife's hard. <laughs> you know, we're sitting around, we're talking, and, um, and we started to remember the works of God together. We started to say, you know what? Do you know that God is doing this thing in this person's life in the church? Oh, that's awesome the way God is strengthening them through this difficulty. Do you know this person who's praying for their neighbor and had a chance to share the gospel this week with them? Do you know about this person who's pursuing this thing and God provided for them? Do you know about these other people who are are getting ready to get baptized? And what we realized is we were never more grateful than than when we were together sharing about the works of God. Because we're quick to forget what he's doing, and so we must gather regularly and tell each other what God is doing, because it's so easy to forget. That's part of the reason for tonight's service, to gather as the whole church and share about what God is doing. It's good for us to gather and remember his works. So be here tonight, six o'clock. It's going to be great. And it might be a big thing you have to share. It might be a little thing you have to share. It might just be a, a verse you read last week that you found encouraging. But it's good for us to gather and remember the works of God. You know, I shared a couple of examples there relating to material, circumstantial kinds of blessings. And those are important for us to remember. But it's also really important that we remember everything that went into God's work of salvation for us. We testify to those blessings because as we said before, Christian gratitude is not grounded in our circumstances. So our thanksgiving must not be limited to good circumstances. So you think back to the song we sang, Jesus, thank you. Think of the chorus. Your blood has washed away my sin. The removal of sin, what we call expiation. Kind of a $2.50 term, just think export. We export goods to other nations and Jesus exported our sins somewhere far away, further than the east is from the west and he imported his righteousness, imputed it to us. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Not only did he take away our sin, the results of our sin, he absorbed the wrath, propitiation. Once your enemy, now seated at your table, full adoption as sons. Whoa. You, if you are in Christ, are a son or a daughter of God co-heirs with Christ. Full inheritance is yours. So don't just say, well, I'm thankful for faith and family and friends and God and salvation. Dig deep on what God has done for you there. Remember his acts. You know, we start to, to wrap things up here. There is one really famous act of thanksgiving in the Bible that I intentionally skipped over that I'd like to come back to, and it's, it's on the screen here. It's in Matthew 26. This is the scene at the Last Supper. Before I read, it's up there, but just stick with me for a second. Put yourself into Jesus' shoes here. The Last Supper, last time with these guys. He knows what's about to come in the next 24 hours. The worst suffering in the history of the world, the most injustice that's ever happened in the history of the world. The agony is about to come. Surely it's the forefront of his mind as he's teaching them of the Last Supper, teaching them to remember what's about to come. Let's pick up and read. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks... knowing what's about to come, 
knowing that it's about to get awful. He's giving thanks. And he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He's giving thanks. He's giving us the model. And do you know what that, that word giving thanks is right there? In Greek, it is Eucharisto. You know what that sounds a little bit like? The Eucharist, the old name for communion, the Lord's Supper. So when we gather, we're fundamentally, based on a word study, we're fundamentally giving thanks for what God has done. Week in, week out. That's why we take communion every week, because it is so important to cultivate a heart of Christian gratitude, of remembering the works of God together. Friends, to be a, gracious, or a person marked by gratitude, to be filled with gratitude, to give thanks in all circumstances, it's to be like Jesus. It's a mark of godliness. It defines Christian gratitude. But it not only defines Christian gratitude, it also empowers Christian gratitude. Because there's times when we wonder, can I really be grateful, can I really be thankful in this circumstance? That's where Paul in Romans 8 chimes in and says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Yes, look at the cross. Remember his works. If he, wouldn't, if he would give up his son for you, he'll give you everything you need. As John Newton once said, nothing is needful that he withholds. Everything is needful that he sends. His gracious, loving hand. And so when we turn our eyes to the cross, it cultivates a heart of Christian gratitude, not just for my circumstances, but for what God in Christ has done for me. And it leads us to say, oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. Oh, praise his name forevermore. For endless days we will sing your praise, oh Lord, oh Lord our God. Let's pray.